freedom. And in the video there, um, it's interesting as Americans, we know a thing or two about freedom, right? Don't we? Yes? No? Maybe so? Maybe we're, maybe we're a little ambiguous today. I don't know. Um, what is so interesting, and this isn't unusual, is that sometimes, um, and, and certainly this is the case here in our country, is that oftentimes we have wrapped freedom around um, freedom in Christ in a way that, like, you know, you saw in the video there, the, the, the flag with the cross kind of thing, like kind of almost giving a sense that the two are synonymous. And I just want to share with you this morning that oftentimes, or maybe not oftentimes, but a lot of times they may not be synonymous. Okay? They may not be synonymous. That the freedom that we enjoy as Americans may not be exactly the freedom that we may enjoy as Christians. That they may actually be two very different things. And let me go with me on this, okay? So don't write me off quite yet, okay? But go with me on this. Think about this just for a minute. And by the way, what I want to share with you this morning is, is a work in progress. So you can disagree with me and you can tell me so. And I would love that conversation and I would love that feedback because it's not, you know, written in stone. It's still very much in clay and will probably remain in clay of, about these thoughts. But here's the thing about what is so unique, in, in my opinion, and in my view, of what is unique and different about the freedoms that we enjoy in this country versus the freedoms that we may have as followers of Christ. In this country, we tend to root our freedom with our rights. So in other words, how we start out with freedom, we first start with our rights. What do we as people, or specifically as Americans, have rights to. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, and by the way, this is not a 4th of July sermon, so this is not where this is going, okay? Just hang with me here. We're getting close to 4th of July, but it's not a 4th of July sermon. In, in the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence, right? Perhaps, and, and I don't disagree, perhaps one of the greatest documents in, not only in our country, but also perhaps maybe in a humanity itself, in terms of what it's sharing. Uh, it kind of ranks right up there with the Magna Carta and other very significant documents throughout human history. The opening lines are these. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How many of you heard these lines before? They are from the Declaration of Independence. They are not in the Constitution. Okay? I just want to make that very, very clear. Okay, and that um, the sense that what we start about with the reason why we have freedom is because we have rights and the whole reason that we have freedom is is to make sure that those rights that we are entitled to are enjoyed. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. Hear me on this. There's nothing wrong with that. I want to set that aside because I don't think that's the kingdom way of freedom. The kingdom way of freedom doesn't start with rights. Let's be honest, brothers and sisters. When it comes to rights in God's kingdom, what rights do we have? Well, none, but more specifically, we have the right of separation and death. Those are our rights. Our rights in the, in the kingdom of heaven are death and separation. Death eternally, death in terms of, of kind of feeling the full weight and consequences of our sin, and separation from our maker and our savior, God himself. Okay, in other words, in God's kingdom, freedom is first and then whatever rights we might have comes after that. In other words, when it comes to God's kingdom, we are free 
and then from that freedom, there are certain rights that we may have. You might, ooh, what rights do we have, right? What rights do I get to have by being free in Jesus Christ? Well, here's the, here's the one right we, that I've looked at that we have. And it actually says rights, okay? And it says this in Scripture. It says, to, to those whom he had given the opportunity to be saved or to be, or to be uh, called, he, we have the rights to be now called his children. That's it. That's our right. We are called God's children. We are called God's children. Now, I say this because I think that there are some things that, and I've been kind of beating this drum for a while now, because every time it pops up in American culture, um, I want to just be able to just call it out, okay? And that I think sometimes in our country that we as Christians we sometimes kind of meld Christianity with our um, Americanism. And there's nothing wrong with that. That happens, right? It's unique. It's cultural. It's what we all do. People all around the world do this, okay? Here's the problem with that whole thing, is that sometimes we can lose sight of where our American identity may diverge from our Christian identity. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example, and you might be angry at me. Past couple weeks, I don't know who it was. Uh, I do know who it was. I'm not going to say that person's name. Um, a political leader in our country, speaking about the Second Amendment, basically kind of did this, converged Americanism with Christianity, and it didn't go well. Because this person said, if Jesus had more AR-15s, then the Roman government wouldn't have killed him. I don't know what to say that. I'd say, what are you talking about? As though Jesus needs an AR-15. As though Jesus needs to be saved. Do do you understand what I'm saying, church? Here's the thing. I was listening to, in preparation for our elder meeting this afternoon, which, yes, we're meeting on Father's Day. We are dedicated, church, to you. <laughs> we are dedicated. Um, I was listening to one of our speakers that national conference, Brother National Conference last year, and I was re-watching the, the videos. I was there and I re-watched one of them. And it's so interesting about pastors and for that matter, anybody who's in a sense of leadership or authority, which in many ways all of us are in some ways. Some of us here are are supervisors at work, some of us here are parents, some of us here are pastors, you know, whatever else it is, we all have kind of positions of authority, right? And I love how this one person defined leadership. This person said leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can tolerate. (laughs) Disappointing people at a rate they can tolerate. So I'm hoping that I've done a pretty good job because so far you've tolerated me, right? You've tolerated me. Um, here's Here's the thing is that oftentimes, therefore, and, and, and I love what this leader says, is that the, the currency of leadership is that in a church situation, it's a little bit different than maybe other organizations in which there are leadership and, then, and people who submit to leaders and all that kind of stuff. In churches, the currency is stewardship. And I agree with what this person was saying. In other words, every single one of you, whether you realize it or not, has entrusted yourselves to the leader's 
whether it's me or other pastors or the boards of this church, to in many ways help us collectively grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. But here's the catch. Here's the catch. When we start doing that, you may get angry at us. You may get angry at us. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah, you, you shouldn't say that stuff. Well, what, are you, what are you saying, that hard stuff? No, 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 no. No, 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 you're not supposed to say that stuff. You get angry. I get angry at when I do that because I entrust myself to other leaders as well. And also I get angry at the fact that they're actually trying to shape and mold me into a disciple of Jesus Christ and to challenge me and to grow me and all that kind of stuff. In other words, sometimes I think we have to acknowledge that some things may be shared up here that we may not sit well with. We may actually disagree with. That's okay. We need to wrestle at times with this stuff. Let me just say this, and I, I'm more and more agreeing with people who have shared this because the people who have oftentimes shared this are, in my opinion, giants of modern-day Christianity. People like C.S. Lewis, people like Brennan Manning, people like Henry Nowen, people that are, you know, uh, A.W. Tozer, um, these giants of kind of the faith in our kind of sphere. And almost all of them, at least at one time, have said this in common. In order for us to truly be able to grow, there has to be a suffering that takes place. A hardship, hardship, hardship that happens. In other words, church, and I've shared this before, let me share it again. If you are here today because you are want to be shielded from the hardships and the pain of life that's out there, I want to just tell you, I wish that were the case, but it's not. But it's not. In other words, the stuff out there gets in here. Why? How does it get in here? Because you're all here. And you came out there. I didn't. I live here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I only work an hour on Sunday. I mean, right? That's, that's all I do. I mean, this is it. I mean, I just gear up. My whole life is just geared towards this. My son even asked me, Dad, do you even work? Yeah, on Father's Day. I'm just... Anyways, um, yeah, listen, we bring the stuff out there into here. We do. This is not... This is the place where we wrestle with this stuff. Under the banner, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as we collectively grow together as Christians. Amen? And it's not always easy, church. I wish it were. It's not always going to be pretty. I wish it were. It's not always going to be smooth. I wish it were. It's just not how it's designed. Jesus, I don't think, designed it that way. If he did, it would be that way. But it's not. It's not that way. It just isn't. What is different is as we collectively come together and turn our focus onto the scriptures is that we look at the scriptures. And what I love about the scripture is there's a lot of suffering in here, isn't it? It doesn't paint a rosy picture of life, does it? I've been kind of journeying through the Old Testament, and I'm uh, reading through First uh, Samuel, and what is so heartbreaking about those is that, you know, you have this high priest, this judge, Eli, who by all, in, by all accounts is a really good priest. He's a, he's a really good priest, and yet his sons are horrible. They're absolutely corrupt priests. They are taking advantage of the offerings. They are just absolutely corrupt. And here's the sad reality, is that he was a good priest, 
but he wasn't a good father. The scriptures say that as much. He didn't discipline his sons. He didn't correct his sons. He didn't, for some odd reason, who knows what reasons they were, he didn't do that. And so God raises up a new high priest, a new judge, if you will, and he was the last judge, and that would judge was Samuel, right? He raises up Samuel, and Samuel becomes this, you know, really giant uh, at that time of Israel. But here's the problem with Samuel, is for all the wonderful things he does, he, he anointed Saul, the first king of Israel. And when Saul didn't work out, he anointed David as the second king of Israel. And yet Saul for our, Samuel, for all of his wonderful attributes, he had the same problem Eli had. His sons were corrupt. His sons were corrupt. You know, Scripture could leave those stories out. Scripture could leave out Lamentations in Jeremiah. Have you read Jeremiah? <laughs> Have you read Lamentations? I've often said Jeremiah is like a weatherman from the Midwest. There was rarely anything good coming out of that man's mouth. It's going to be cloudy with a chance of clouds today. I mean, it was just one thing. It was just awful. It's hard. Have you read the Psalms where David is just writing about his enemies attacking him? Where he is just, you know, and he is crying out to God, how long, O Lord? How long before you do something? These are Psalms of agony. These are Psalms of life, brothers and sisters. And so this morning, as we come to our next identity statement, which I'm getting there, by the way. Some doubtful people in the room. Possibly. Um, the, the, The identity statement, I am free, we need to understand what does that statement mean. Because in my opinion, out of all of the identity statements that we have looked at, and perhaps, I can't say for sure, out of all the identity statements that we may continue to look at for the remainder of this year, Perhaps this statement, more than any other, is one that can be most abused because it may be most misunderstood. Does that make sense? We can abuse our freedom in Christ. And by the way, let me just share this with all of you this morning. This isn't an American problem, church. This is a human problem all over the entire world all over Christendom, even in the early church, they had this issue. If they had this issue of freedom in Christ, we certainly may still have this issue of what it means to be free in Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing, I don't know about you, but for me, I want to be free. But what does that freedom mean? What in my mind does it mean for me to be free? I can tell you this, it probably collectively isn't good. That my idea of freedom is probably more, when it's put into practice, bondage, slavery. So this morning, what I want to do is I want us to go through and kind of ask one question this morning and try to attempt to answer the question is this. What does freedom in Christ look like? In other words, what are we free from? Does that make sense? What are we free from? And I want us to take a look at Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 8. There are some theologians, and and I can understand why they say this. There are some theologians who believe that Romans chapter 8 is not only the greatest chapter in the book of Romans, perhaps not only the greatest chapter in the entire New Testament, but there are some theologians who believe that Romans 8 is perhaps the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. It is that rich. 
It is that rich. Here's my only regret. We will only cover eight verses of it today. We will only cover eight verses of it today. But my hope is, is that as we do, we will learn a little bit about what does it mean or what does it look like or what are we actually free from as we embrace this identity, I am free. I am free. Okay, does that make sense, church? All right. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 8. Um, and we're going to be just in the first uh, eight verses there. But here's the thing, is that before we get into there, Paul has been laying the foundation uh, up until this point of the gospel. And specifically, justification by faith, not by works. In other words, we know this as Christians. We are not justified by what we do, but rather by who we place our faith in. That is Jesus Christ. There is nothing we can do, and by the way, we've heard this before, I'm going to share it again, that we can do to earn our salvation. There is nothing that we can do to impress God by what we do for him that he all of a sudden says, wow, you are more worthy than I ever thought you could be. You are better than I ever thought you were. You, are, you have just impressed me more than I ever thought you could impress me. Hey, come on in. You are saved. <laughs> right? So you might ask, well, why do we do good things then? Oh, because we do it because we are just so grateful. We do it in honor of God, not to earn his favor. We do it because we love him, not to impress him. Does that make sense? Right? It's a reverse order church, okay? Anyways, Paul is laying this foundation down because here's the thing that was going on in the church in Rome. Is the church in Rome was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, but here's the thing, the Jews got kicked out of Rome, the emperor, you know, blamed some stuff on the Jews, they got kicked out, so the Gentile Christians were meeting while the Rome, or the Jewish Christians were, were, you know, not there, and what began to happen is that when the Jewish Christians were finally allowed to come back into Rome, they got back to church, and they noticed that the Gentiles had taken everything over. They were sitting in my seat, right? They weren't playing my music. They had the volume way too loud. And you know what? The temperature in that place, it never was good. It's either too hot or too cold, right? You know what? And all of a sudden, they changed the carpet. And they started changing the version of the Bible they were reading out of. And they started dressing differently. All that, you, you get the picture, Right? And so Paul has to come in there and say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because he's trying to get these two groups to worship together, to come together and worship. And so he's explaining to them the theology about what's going on here. And he's trying to say, guess what? That, that stuff is not as important as understanding that we are united in Christ because of our salvation through him. And so it's going to be okay. Start there. He's laying that foundation. And in the midst of that, he comes to chapter 8. And this is where we are going to learn about things that we are free from. And the first is this. We are free, brothers and sisters, from condemnation. We are free from condemnation. Now, here's what I mean by this. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, when we come to the word therefore, we always ask ourselves, what is it therefore? If you want to know the answer to that, let's look at Romans chapter 7, just the two end verses there of that chapter, 24 and 25, those verses there, and this is what it says. Paul is saying this, wretched man that I am. What a statement. Wretched man that I am. Have you ever thought about that? 
church, about yourself? Have you ever thought about how broken you and I really are? Have you ever thought about, oh my word, truly, I, I, man, I am not worthy. How broken and bent I am. Paul comes out, how, what a wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? In other words, Paul recognizes and he's sharing, guess what? We, we are in this fleshly body. We are in this, you know, this sinful, broken body in the spirit in the, under this law of sin and death. Who will set us free from this? And then he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. He's like, who's going to free me from this dichotomy? Who's going to free me from this tension? Who's going to free me from this conflict? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who does. And then he comes to verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Period. We are free from condemnation. I love what Eugene Peterson writes in his paraphrased version of the message about this passage. He says this. He writes the following. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Do you see those words? Isn't that beautiful? The clouds have lifted. The air is clear. We are no longer under the brutal tyranny of sin and death. We are now free. Breathe the free air. Breathe the free air. We are free. We are absolutely free. That is a beautiful picture of what we are free from. We are free from condemnation. In other words, brothers and sisters, when one day we stand before Jesus Christ, and we will stand before him, and we will give an account of what we did. Everyone has to give an account. But you know what the difference between those who know Jesus is to those who may not know who Jesus is? Is that after our account is given... Jesus will look at us and say, welcome, good and faithful servant. I'm so glad you are here. Come and enjoy all that I have prepared for you. The scariest thing to me, perhaps the scariest passage in the Bible for me, is to stand before Jesus and Jesus to say, I don't know who you were. Depart from me. That is just scary. I never, ever want to hear those words. But in Jesus Christ, we don't have to hear those words. We are free from being condemned to the law of sin and death in which every single one of us are born into. We are free from that. We are free from condemnation. Absolutely free from condemnation. In other words, whatever we have done, no matter how bad it has been, we are not defined by that act. We are not defined by that event. We are not defined by that sin. We are defined by who we are in Jesus Christ. When God sees us, he sees his son because we have faith in him. 
Does that make sense? We are free from condemnation. Martin Luther said this, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and you will be saved. Now, Martin Luther writes, choose what you want. Some of you here today may be still carrying sin on your back. You may be still carrying stuff that you may have done in your past that you feel awful about, that you feel guilty about, that you are just just wrecked over. It just has wrecked you. And you've allowed it to define your life. You have, de- you have allowed it to define how you have relationships with other people. You have allowed it to define how you have your relationship with even God himself. And I want to share with you today, if that is maybe where you are, lift that off your back and put it on Jesus. He can take it. Jesus, take this from me. Take this from me. Please, I am so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. And you know what? He will. He will. Stop carrying this and letting it define you. You don't have to let it define you. We are free from condemnation. Here's the second thing. We are not only free from condemnation, we are free from the law. Free from the law. How many of us would love to be free from the law? How many songs have been written about I fought the law and the law won? One. It's only taken one song. And guess who oftentimes writes songs like that or similar to that, right? Lawbreakers. <laughs> Lawbreakers write songs about I fought the law and the law won, right? Huh. Freedom from the law. Now, what law are we free from? Well, let's take a look at verses 3 through 4 of Romans chapter 8. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What law was that? That was the Ten Commandments. That was the Ten Commandments brought by Moses down from Mount Sinai to the people of Israel for them to follow these laws. These laws were etched in stone. What I think is so interesting is that the first time Moses brought these tablets down, what were the people of Israel doing? They were worshiping a golden calf. I mean, they didn't even have these laws. The laws were being written, and they were already breaking it. They were already breaking the laws. They broke a whole bunch of them, by the way, just in that one act. I mean, just think about that. Idolatry, yep, check, got that off, right? Taking God's name in vain, yep, check that, got that one off. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. And what does Moses do when he sees them dancing around this golden calf? And I love what Aaron says. It doesn't matter how old we are. We are, in many ways, can still act like children. Do you remember what Aaron's excuse was as to explain as to what was going on there? Why this golden calf was there? Do you know what Aaron said? He said this, you know what, Moses, I don't know. He's the older brother, by the way. Moses is the younger brother. He says, I don't know what happened. All we did is we threw gold into the fire and out jumped this golden calf right? I mean, it doesn't matter how old we are, man. We still go back to childish reasoning. I don't know what happened. And all of a sudden, that got, this golden calf just appeared. It's a miracle, right? I mean, it's just crazy. Moses takes those tablets and he throws them and it breaks intentionally because you broke all the laws right there. You broke them. So he's got to go back and we get a new set of laws. That's the law. The law was not there to save anybody. I've said this before and I'll say it again. 
No one stops you. And what I mean no one is a police officer or anybody else who enforces the law stops you when you are going the speed limit. It pulls you over and says, hey, I just want to let you know you are following the law. I'm so grateful. Man, great job following the law. I just want to just recognize you for following. That, that's not when the law shows up. You know when the law shows up? When does the law show up? When you break it. That's when the law shows up. In other words, as good as the law is here, even God knew that this was not going to, this was the start of his salvation plan. This was not the end of it. Jesus was always the end of it. The law was there to, in many ways, help us to be more like God, but also to show us how, how much we fail to even follow the law and how much we need a savior, someone who can fulfill the entire, you know, entire entity of the law, both in spirit and in, and in uh, uh, writing, if you will, and, and to do that, and only one person could do that, and that is Jesus Christ. We are free from that law. That doesn't mean we get to go off and do whatever we want. What we are free from is free from trying to, you know, impress God by following all the Ten Commandments. All that kind of stuff. We are free from that. And we are free from the penalty of when we break that law, which is oftentimes death and separation. This is what Jesus did. St. Augustine of Hippo, I think, wrote beautifully about what Jesus did. And he says this, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. That's what Jesus did. He became one of us. He lived a life like we live. And by the way, it wasn't an easy life growing up in poverty, being, you know, facing hunger, tiredness, all the stuff that we as human beings face. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did so that we could be free from the law because he would fulfill it in all of its aspects. That's what Jesus did. In other words, as St. Ignatius says this, this was the result. For the Lord touched all parts of creation and freed and undeceived them all from every deceit. Let me say that again. For the Lord touched all parts of creation and freed and undeceived them all from every deceit. We don't have to be deceived anymore. We can be freed from all of that. We can be freed from trying to do it on our own. We can be free from, from saying, you know what, I am good enough. We can be freed from all of those things. We can be freed from all of that stuff. We are free from the law. And here's the third one. And perhaps this is the hardest one. We are free from ourselves. Free from ourselves. This is what Paul writes. For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, 
for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Perhaps this is the biggest thing we need to be free from is ourselves. Our own ideas, our own mindset, our own beliefs about what it means for us to be free and what it means to actually be free. And those are two very different things. You need to understand this. What I think is freedom is probably not freedom. What you may think is freedom may not be freedom. I don't know. And I need to be freed from that type of thinking. Now, let me just say, and I'm, I, I'm going to step on some toes here a little bit, okay? And, and, and I'm going to answer this question just a little bit. It wasn't part of today's sermon, but I'm going to put it in here nonetheless. You're getting a bonus today. You are so lucky. You are so lucky. I, I whew, You know what? How are we to use our freedom? And this is some ways that we play out that, that we struggle with this views of, of what is freedom to us and what is freedom in Christ. Here is what freedom in Christ largely is in one huge aspect, is that we use our freedom for the benefit of others, not for ourselves. We don't think about ourselves first. We don't think about ourselves less. We just don't think about ourselves very often. Does that make sense? We use our freedom for the benefit of others. For the benefit of others. And let me just say this as bluntly as I can, church, and I'm not accusing anybody here in this room, but there are certainly Christians out there who have done it. And these past couple of years have been some of the most horrendous witness of the church, evangelical church, that I have seen in my lifetime. Of Christian brothers and sisters who are thinking about themselves only and using the phrase, I have rights, to justify actions that are anything other than Christ-like. Self-preservation at the sacrifice of community wholeness and healing. Shame on us for doing something like that. For abusing our freedom in that way. For abusing our freedom in that way. And I don't care, you can plug in whatever you want on there. You can plug in guns, you can plug in masks, you can plug in uh, uh, getting immunized i don't care you can plug in all those things when we all of a sudden begin selfish about and we turn to well i have rights we have left the christian land and have gone over to american citizenship nothing wrong with that just recognize and call it what it is just call it what it is we use our freedom for the benefit of others. Why? Because Jesus used it for us. Used it for us. I love how one pastor says this. Christ-likeness, and that's really what this is, becoming more like Christ. Freedom from myself is to be more like Jesus. Christ-likeness isn't just merely acting like Jesus. It's becoming more like him. Not only in our actions, but in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our attitudes, the whole thing. We are not just merely to act like Jesus. We are to be growing to be more like him. Does that make sense? And I don't know about you, but here's my job, I believe, as, as a pastor, is when I see us, and myself included in this, because I am just as guilty, by the way, 
I don't stand up here as anybody, anyone better than anyone else. I am just as guilty. When I see us, myself included, acting in ways that are selfish, that are putting rights before freedom instead of freedom in Christ for the benefit of others, I'm going to call it out. I'm going to call it out. Because it needs to be. It needs to be. We are free. We are free. And let me just say this, church, there are people still out there who have not embraced this message yet. After all, how can they embrace that message when we struggle with it ourselves at times? There's a cloud hanging out low over people's hearts and minds out in this world today. And it hangs low for many. Today, I don't know if you know this, is June 19th. In our church, we probably wouldn't think much about it, but in many African-American churches, this is Juneteenth. June 19th, 1865. It was the day when, finally, the, dec- the, the, proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863. It took another two years before it finally made it to the outreaches of the country. And perhaps the last outpost of the country at that time was Texas before finally slaves in Texas were told, two years after it was signed, hey, you're free. You're free. You're free. I share that to say this. In churches today, evangelical churches, maybe even predominantly churches that are white or otherwise, Sometimes I'm concerned about the fact that we shy away from talking about issues that maybe are hard to talk about, we need to talk about. Because there are people who are still living under bondage. And what we may say is, well, that was in the past. Just let it go. I wasn't there. I'm not responsible for it. I didn't do that personally. Yeah, I get it. It doesn't solve it. Jesus didn't take our sin and say, huh, you know what, just ignore it, just put it in the past. Jesus didn't say, I wasn't there. I wasn't there when you committed that. I didn't do that. You did it. You're responsible for it. I'm not. No, Jesus did the opposite. He says, no, no, no. I wasn't there. I didn't do it, but I'll take it on because I love you. If there is one space that ought to be a space where we can talk about helping people get out of bondage, it ought to be here in the church. And if all we're talking about bondage is, well, Jesus just came to free you spiritually, Chuck. That's all he came for. He is just interested in your soul. I reject that theology because that is a Gnostic form of theology that was dangerous in the early church, and it still exists in this church today. Not this church, but churches today. Jesus was here. If if all Jesus was concerned about the soul, he didn't have to come as a human. If Jesus was all concerned about the soul, he didn't have to heal anybody. He didn't have to feed anybody. He didn't have to give water to anybody. He didn't have to do any of that stuff. No, no, Jesus is concerned about it all. So when we talk about things like refugees, and we ought to be able to talk about things like critical race theory. You know what is interesting about that? When you ask a lot of people, and I'm included in that, is what does critical critical race theory mean to you? Oftentimes, we don't have a clue. We don't know what we're talking about. We just know it's a threat. For what? Is it a threat to our power? 
is it a threat to us? What? We may disagree with it, but let's talk about it. There are people 